0: Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I am very happy to be here today with Damon Linker, who is a journalist, he's a political pundit, and he's also an intellectual, a rare combination, I would say. Um, He started off uh, studying philosophy and the Straussian tradition. He worked at First Things Magazine uh, and then wrote a book called The Theocons, uh, detailing kind of his understanding of the political trends, in America specifically being pushed by kind of the religious influence on the right. And I think of him as somebody who was kind of an early forecaster in a way of some of the, uh, the trends that we're now seeing in American politics. And he's also got a substack called Eyes on the Right, which takes, I think, a, um, an analytical approach to some of the changing political dynamics in our contemporary moment in terms of authoritarianism. And I like to think of Damon as a heterodox centrist, but I won't
1: put him in a box. Welcome. Thank you. I, I definitely don't like being in a box, but I'm placed there a lot, so I'm used to it if you want to do it a little bit, that's fine. Uh, great to be here.
0: You've been somebody who spent time in academia and kind of in the world of erudition, and you're also somebody who makes a living having takes and sort of weighing into the contemporary. And there's that you know cliched saying that um, the newspaper is the first draft, draft of history. Um, and then when you take sort of a centuries-long view or even like a millennial-long view of history, it's kind of humbling. So how do you balance the perspective of sort of the everyday, um, seeing where things are going, you know, stock goes up, stock goes down kind of view of life, with maybe this more grand narrative Perspective that you often find in the academy when you read a thinker like Leo Strauss, who's you know talking about modernity and the ancients, and uh, you know painting with a much broader brush.
1: That's a great question, and it's complicated because you know Strauss is himself very much an outlier in the contemporary academy. For this, Um, he did not hesitate uh, to offer very big, sweeping. Uh, both philosophic and historic takes on on everything, pretty much. But that's quite rare in the contemporary academy, which is much more about very specialized knowledge, kind of saying saying more and more about less and less. Um, And so if you're a Straussian in the academy, you're already inclined toward kind of the old-fashioned big take approach. Um, and I suppose you could say that my my uh, way of doing journalism is definitely influenced by that Straussian encounter, not not in the sense that lots of my, Columns, you can discern a kind of Straussian influence on them. I don't. I don't regularly write about how. Oh, the latest example of the third wave of modernity is here, or like, or ancients, moderns. I don't. I don't like use those typically uh, Straussian formulations very much in in what I write. But um, the ambition to achieve. I don't know what metaphor you want to use from the ancient world, whether it's leaving the cave or climbing up on Mount Olympus or being on Scipio's rug looking down. I mean, there are a number of these types of uh, images from the ancients, and there's a reason why that their idea of achieving wisdom involved sort of standing apart from the clamor on the ground and trying to gain a broader perspective on the parties uh, at war on the field of battle. And that is very much the way I understand myself. I'm not not bragging to the extent that I, I think I achieve it very often, but I do aspire to look at politics uh, from something a little bit more like what Aristotle describes as kind of the political philosopher as umpire, who, who tries, you know, he has a stake in the game, but yet also tries to be a fair judge, uh, while sometimes failing, but, but aspiring to it. Um, and I do, I do think that I get that, uh, that aim from Strauss, even if not that many Straussians actually, you know, pursue the calling in exactly that way, uh, some of them do enter the fray very aggressively. Others sort of just delve into reading Platonic dialogues and writing commentaries on them for other Straussians and very few others. Um, you know, I've done bits of each of those, but didn't find either of them particularly satisfying or really to speak to my peculiar talents so uh what i've ended up doing is what goes with the grain of my soul i guess you could say um and uh maybe my uniqueness in that regard uh is is nothing more than a product of those idiosyncrasies uh that are just mine (laughs) a product of who i happen to be by nature
0: a lot of uh, pundits don't have philosophical training or even necessarily a kind of deep literacy in the humanities. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about that, but if you accept the premise as a generalization, um, do you think that there's a certain lack uh, in the output as a result, or can we compartmentalize and say the skill needed to be a good pundit um, has very little to do with the skill needed to ask what is justice, what is goodness, what is beauty, what is truth?
1: Well, there are of course many kinds of journalists. I think that you can be a, a quite a good reporter without having to have a, a large kind of background in the humanities and that kind of thing, because you're you're you, you can you can gain a fair amount of human wisdom just by having open eyes and ears and listening to how people talk and and evaluating what they say, and you you kind of. There are many paths to acquiring knowledge of the way the world works and a good reporter without any real formal education beyond, you know, writerly skills um, can, can become good at what they do. When it comes to pundits, yeah, I do think, especially, um, you know, younger, Younger people who uh, end up in jobs at media companies and very quickly are assigned you know the task of writing like two or three hot takes a day for the sake of clicks, if they don't have that kind of if they haven't really read books seriously, and then plus you know you also can't these days take for granted that they have at least the kind of uh, rudimentary um, uh, literacy that you get culturally from being raised in a, in a religious tradition. Um, you know, that's not there either. You know, Judith Schlar, the uh, political philosopher at uh, Harvard for many years, uh, said toward the end of her life in the early 90s that she had stopped teaching Augustine to undergraduates because they, they so totally lacked the kind of biblical literacy to even make sense of what he was talking about and this was at harvard and this was in the 90s and it's gotten much worse since then so you know if you, you if you assign someone the task of being a pundit which you know in its most regal sense means looking at the world and trying to make some sense you know, connecting dots synthesizing what's going on uh, gaining some perspective on it but you have no kind of knowledge of the the grand sweep of history or the history of ideas or the history of philosophic or religious thought. Um, you're gonna be sort of just swimming, you're gonna be at sea, you're gonna mistake like little blips that happen for like world historical events that have are without precedent when actually they happen every other every other year. you know it's You're not going to be very good at it. And I'm I'm afraid that the current media landscape um, doesn't really care much. As long as it gets those clicks and brings in the traffic, that's what matters. And sometimes the most ignorant, outrageous take will travel furthest uh, because the audience doesn't have much of that education either. And so um, everyone can kind of whip, whip each other into these froths of indignation about something that's really a phantom if you, if you have that history and background.
0: So you mentioned Plato's Cave and Mount Olympus before. I'm gonna use a different myth that, that speaks to me, which is the myth of Sinai. Um, and specifically, or you know, I shouldn't say myth in the pejorative sense. I, I mean the the cornerstone story. Um, but right, that that's a that's an ambivalent tale because it's one in which the prophet and the lawgiver leaves society to go get the law, and when he when Moses returns, he is uh, confronted by a scene of idolatry and complacency, and uh, and acts out in anger and indignation. Meanwhile, his brother, who's the priest, has been providing the people with what they want what they want is a golden calf to worship. And it's a kind of paradigmatic story, I think of the dilemma of leadership, where on the one hand you can go up to heaven and get the truth, but then you leave the people behind. On the other hand, you can traffic and clickbait, uh, you can sell junk food, you can give people what they claim to want, although it may not be good for them. Um, and I think it's not coincidental that the prophet is the one who's alienated, right? That's Moses is the prophet and Aaron is the priest The job of the priest, in a cynical sense, is to be a kind of entertainer. Entertainer, he's he's trading in spectacle, and um, it's not yes, the spectacle can be a holy spectacle, the temple, for example, but it can also be a profane spectacle, and it's not always easy to tell the difference. When the goal is to sell seats, how do you then also have as your um, metric for success that those seats are? going to benefit people as opposed to just their selling. So in light of that kind of dichotomy between Moses and Aaron, um, how do you think about balancing those two as somebody who obviously needs readers um, and listeners and wants to be impactful, and at the same time, you don't want to just become captive to your audience?
1: yeah i I actually struggle with that quite a lot. Um I don't have a huge audience uh, even for my sub stack and that's um you know it's it's the dilemma on one dimension between quality and quantity in in the sense that you know I might only have several hundred paying subscribers for the Substack, But, uh, you know, I like to think that, well, those are self-selected, really virtuous <laughs> readers. So, uh, you know, somehow I beat the people who have, you know, 10 or 100 times as many uh, because that's just the rabble. But this is a kind of self-justifying thing. I mean, my problem is that I, I really don't feed the 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 crowd what they want. I am not Aaron. <laughs> I'm not Moses either. So don't don't think I'm saying that I actually, you know, go up to Mount Olympus and bring down a new tablet three times a week. Um when I post on the Substack, but um I do f- that's why I sort of gravitate to the Plato's cave image a little bit more because Law giving is, is something else. Um, I'm not trying to, to give tablets of law about how people should live. I'm, I'm just trying to understand, and I see that in some ways as much more humble. I, I'm simply trying to bracket my own very intense, tendency to care about one side or the other or who's up or who's down or what's best for the country or the world, um, and instead kind of distrust that tendency to to be partisan and not to uh, ignore it, uh, but to to again keep it within bounds and then see what I can see when I resist that Impulse that the passions that are wrapped up with politics, but I again, I don't, I don't, I mean, at the furthest extreme of bracketing those feelings, you become a quantitative political scientist where it's all data and you're relying on modern research methods to, to like um, suck out all the marrow, all the, all the, the blood from the analysis. So, I don't want that either. It's a kind of, uh, again, I see it as a kind of humanistic ideal of wanting to feel the political conviction in myself and learn from that, like my own love of justice, my own love of the noble, or uh, admiring honor as classical ideals. Uh, but then also realizing that those things can distort our judgment and lead us to not, not really judge well what's going on around us. It can lead us to judge poorly in our own case, to to miss the, the ways in which uh, the kind of exaggerations on our own side are replicated on the other side. And so people aren't as perhaps guilty of injustice as they first appear to be. Uh, when I look at it as a partisan, and and I respect and appreciate pushback that I sometimes get because I write sort of for both camps, right and left, at least open-minded people on both sides. When I say something that's really critical, say of the right, and then a thoughtful conservative comes back to me on Twitter and is like, you know you're full of crap on this actually you know democrats did the same thing 3 years ago and sometimes i think no that's not parallel they're different in important ways but other times i say you know come to think of it you're right i i did judge that more harshly than i should have because this is this is something where you know doing a, an act of what about as they say you know whataboutism that you know, there the reason, you know, one reason why uh, there's so much of that is because there is a parallel in which each side is constantly provoking the other into doing the very thing that that uh, the other side doesn't want it to, and that's that's kind of the way politics works. Yeah,
0: Hannah Arendt is famous for saying that our age is an age in which we've retreated from judgment. And, um, you know, I I find that a very evocative diagnosis. Uh, But as somebody who actually has to make a lot of judgments, uh, do you you agree that we've retreated from judgment or are we actually in a backlash moment where maybe we have too much judgment? We have bad judgments and we have have sort of uh, easy judgments, but uh, nonetheless, we're kind of in a very judgmental time.
1: We are I mean, I do think we are, but I also agree which with I think the import of, of Arendt's comment there that that we're often judging quite poorly for reasons uh, you know because we as I said earlier, we were discussing the uh, you know the, the lack of of kind of formative education but uh for a lot of people and and that informs the quality of the judgments people make because they don't have reference points um, But I I actually wrote a a Substack post a few weeks ago titled something like, All We Have is Judgment, uh, because I think very often rancorous, angry political disputes um, that get couched in terms of ideological or partisan uh, affiliation or attachment is often a kind of distraction from what we're really talking about which is that actually we disagree in our judgment about what even is happening in the world you know i think i may i don't remember exactly what i was responding to in that piece but it might have been something like you know the, the latest iteration of recriminations about the iraq war the arguments for it and then the the anger about it after the fact and it all comes down to like in the aftermath of 9/11 when you looked at Saddam Hussein like how did you judge the threat that he posed you know was he a threat that was so great we had to do this kind of unprecedented thing of preemptively toppling his government and then take take responsibility for peace and order in that country along with the judgments about how hard that was going to be um, many of which I think were, were quite wrong, it turns out to be, but, or was he deterrable? Was this all a kind of overreaction because we were scared about the fact that we got caught with our pants down on 9-11? Uh, we're not prepared for that kind of um, very egregious and bold terrorist attack. So, like, that's one of a thousand examples, but anytime Anytime you look out at the world, you know, how bad is Donald Trump? Is he good? Is he is he is he just merely not great? Or is he like the worst president we've ever seen? Is he extremely dangerous? Is he a joke? You know, like there's this huge and then every position between those different extreme judgments I just listed we all sort of go through our daily life and looking at politics and make very, very strong judgments on, in those different positions and then argue on their basis as if it's self-evidently true. When most cases it is not self-evident, it's actually a kind of almost pre-philosophical, um, quick... You know, like cognitive scientists will talk about this kind of like emotional, quick uh, claim that you're making before you even start to reason. Um, Kind of thinking fast and slow, that kind of an argument. Like this is your this is your fast thought, which is you instantly size up a situation. But what is that and? Is it, is it intelligent? Is it based on sound judgment? Or is it shaped by pre-existing ideological assumptions that are themselves questionable? It's a kind of hall of mirrors if you really dig into it. And obviously, if you do too much of that, you get you get stymied and you, you end up not being able to say anything because you're second-guessing every opinion that enters your head. So I don't want to go that far. But I do think that one should... If one is a pundit, one should do that kind of work in a kind of constant, constant in a, in a, a mode of constantly checking oneself, constantly asking oneself, well, wait a minute, this, this opinion that I'm arguing for is based on a preexisting judgment about what is even happening here, and where did those assumptions come from, and are they sound, and, and what about my critics? Are there, are, is it that they they agree with that judgment but disagree about how I think we should act on its basis? Or are they actually disagreeing fundamentally with the judgment and then should we be arguing about that instead?
0: I think one reason why people are reluctant to dig into their sort of, you call it pre-philosophical commitments, if you will, or their their orientation, their Weltanschauung, is because if they would... Um, find an error there they might have to change their lives and that's quite that's quite an ask right um you know if you've got a mortgage you've got a job you've got a family whatever it is maybe maybe you have none of those attachments but you know you've got an identity that's that's formed around that you've got a habit around that you've got uh, a certain childhood uh set of experiences in which you want to view your your childhood in a certain way and if you change your principles you're going to have to look at it differently and that's destabilizing. So, like, I think the question is, maybe it's a it's a it's a deep it's a deep question. You're somebody who has, from my understanding, experienced conversion. Uh, maybe you've experienced multiple conversions, but I think you're you're a person who ha- has changed his mind and changed his heart. So maybe you have some insight into what is actually required to go through that journey. And then. What wisdom would, could you share with the sort of more normal person or you know baseline the the median voters so to say who maybe doesn't want to um be so shaken up do they have a right to not to sort of not interrogate
1: yeah the wow great questions that's uh, that's enough for a good hour conversation from here on no, but i i won't <laughs> I won't indulge myself that much um I mean, my own situation, I think, is unique to me. I would not advise people to, like, regularly change their religions and their ideological positioning uh, as dramatically as I have over the years. For listeners who aren't aware of what uh, Zohar is referring to, uh, I was raised as a secular uh, Jew, thoroughly secular, no Jewish education to speak of. I was not bar mitzvahed. Uh, I have no Hebrew school experience of any kind, but I was raised to be a kind of culturally identifying uh, Jew. Uh, But in my late 20s, after spending a couple years out of Brigham Young University uh, among the Mormons, uh, that experience stirred up a lot of uh, religious feeling and longing in myself. And by that point, I was already married to a, a Catholic woman. And so I made a kind of pre, I guess the Catholic theological term is prevenient, prevenient grace, they, they would say, led me to decide, well, you know, we'd been, we'd been sort of undecided about what we would do when we raised kids. Would they be secular Jewish? Would they be Catholic? And I just decided, yeah, it'll just be easier for my marriage, for my family, and for maybe my spiritual happiness if I convert to Catholicism, which I knew far more about by that point because of my graduate education than I did about Judaism, because I had studied Augustine, Aquinas, and and many other Christian thinkers. So I, I sort of did that, and it was quite... Calculated. It was not that I had, you know, a, a road to Damascus experience and was like, I now know Jesus is the Christ and, and decided I needed to be a Catholic. It was more I had felt something in myself that uh, was stirred up by being around very religious, morally serious people out at Brigham Young. And I wasn't prepared to become a Mormon, Uh, and here was my Catholic wife and my kind of Catholic education from my grad experience, and so I decided that would be it. Um, But it didn't really take. Um, I tried for several years and uh, went through the motions, Um, but for any number of reasons, uh, in the end, the attempt to sort of... <clears throat> follow uh, up when Augustine, you know Augustine and Paul and other Christians talk about how basically, like you know, you have to, you you believe, you, you kind of pray first. You go you you go go to church. You, you go participate in the sacraments, and then you believe. Like that, there is this long history of Christian thought advocating that that you you kind of make the leap, and then you kind of come to believe it from living it. Uh, that didn't work for me. Uh, my intellect is too <laughs> I'm actively skeptical, and we haven't really talked about skepticism, but I'll try to culminate on that at the end of this monologue. But. Um, so that I sort of slowly faded away and moved away from Catholicism. and by now I've kind of left it behind and I'm sort of back to being a secular Jew. Um, and then similarly on politics, I, I was sort of raised to be a kind of secular liberal, um, became more conservative in graduate school as I studied Strauss and and uh, related ideas, but never in a kind of concretely political way like through the 90s i was a kind of a vaguely unengaged clinton supporter like not not strongly uh pro clinton or pro democrat but sort of defaulted to that while not really thinking about politics very much but then when it came time to leave the academy because i hadn't gotten a job i i i wanted to try to make it in journalism and all my connections because of graduate school and the Straussians were among neocon types in the journalism world and I could write that way because um, I, I had had this training in classical political thinking and the, the conservative world at that time was very much keyed toward that way of thinking and talking about politics so I became a kind of neoconservative writer and ended up at first things, and then that didn't work out. And that's a whole, whole other story that I've talked about a lot down through the years. So to, to, to back away from the biography a little bit, I think one thing that I could say for other people who, who you know, you know, aren't pundits full time, who don't have to reflect as much as I do on these things and also might be a little skittish about being so <laughs> all over the map, is, is this point about skepticism. I think it's perfectly fine and in fact good to be passionate, be committed, know what you think and what you believe, and, and to engage in politics and thinking about human life in light of that. Provided you always are carrying in the back of your head a little voice, a version of Socrates' daimon, who's whispering in your ear, but you could be wrong, and that's the key that I think is too often lacking these days. Um, and and it's hard. You now pe- people think, well, if you have that voice in your head saying you could be wrong, you'll end up again, as I said earlier, sort of, you'll you'll end up stymied or kind of. Um, all bound up in uncertainty and like looking at all the options before you and just not know what to choose. But I don't think that's the case. I think that we're talking two levels of kind of cognitive engagement with the world. One is the act of judgment and refining your judgment. And then that's shaped by your education, your upbringing, your your elective affinities as you grow up your friends, where you work, things like that. But then there there is the ability at all times to kind of step back from those commitments and look at them a little bit, a little bit apart to kind of take something you're staring at in your hand and like move the hand a little bit further away and see it in a new perspective. And it's in that latter move that you can always tell yourself, you know what, I believe this thing more strongly than anything else, it's what I think is worth fighting for, and I want to devote my life, or at least part of my life, to to advocating for it. But in the end, I could be wrong. This could be a mistake. People make mistakes, their judgment is, their judgment can be questionable, and um, and it's important to, to be able to make that move, I think, because we all do to, uh, you know, I'm gonna quote St. Paul, we do see through a glass darkly, and, uh, and we, can't, we can't be sure, and so yeah. Anyway. Does,
0: that, does that skepticism translate, or should it translate into a change in the way that you show up in the world, or is it just a kind of little secret for you to keep to yourself, like you hear that diamond's voice, that's between you and the diamond. So, like, to, to sort of make it concrete, like, you know, take Martin Luther. That um, <laughs> was pretty bold what he did, um, putting ninety-five theses on the door, and like, he 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 seemed to be a pugnacious kind of soul. Um, you know, he's got he 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 has that line like I'm a uh, I'm a violent physician for violent times. <laughs> um, certainly not a diplomat, um, I guess. But imagining that Luther had that voice of doubt as well, um, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to listen to that voice, I could be wrong, but at the same time, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, I, I got to fight the church, it's corrupt. So, like, what does it actually matter from the world's point of view, whether Luther had that internal skepticism or not? Like, he still showed up yeah. as a fighter.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think it does, at least for me, it does show up, but as a kind of second order issue about like how I comport myself to the debates I get embroiled in, whether it's on the substack and something else I'm writing on Twitter. And that is a kind of empathy for those on the other side. Um, and again, not that I like write a ton of posts that are like all about you know, you know, being empathetic for its own sake, because then I would be sort of insipid. It has to do with with as I'm making my argument about why they're wrong on the other side of any debate I'm in. At a deep level, I'm aware that they're in most cases not malign in their intent. They they just as sincerely believe what they're saying as I do. And it might have been a fairly subtle you know break in our paths that led that person to that side and me to this side and it could have been flipped and like again does that inform directly what i might say to that person in the middle of an argument no but it it gives maybe something like a touch of socratic irony a kind of twinkle in the eye to the debate in the sense that If it gets heated and the other person makes a point, am I just going to, in every every step of the argument, take my own side 110% and say that I think they're full full of it? Um, Or will I be open to actually saying, you know what, that one point, not the overall thing, but that one point you just made, I'll grant that. Like, you're right on that. I actually had a blind spot. And that willingness to uh, not simply all the time defend my own position, no matter how absurd some of the arguments I might be making, like a kind of openness to recognizing uh, my own blind spot is kind of there in the background. And I think that when people uh, praise me, which they do every now and then. It's usually some version of, oh, you're such an honest writer or thinker. And it's it, what they're talking about, I think, is that... You know, I, I made a point when I was a columnist for eight and a half years at The Week, um, writing three columns a week, I made a point at least once a year to do a column, you know, what I got wrong. And some other pundits do that kind of thing. But, but for me, it was very uh, deeply embedded in in who I am as a thinker like I am I regularly revisit things that I've said in the past and talk about why I now have more information and in light of what we've seen subsequently I had this thing I said four months ago and actually it turns out that isn't right um, and and the thing that enables me to do that and not be afraid that I'm Somehow show, showing the world that I don't know what I'm talking about is that I, I I carry around that little voice in the back of my head that's like always making me ask myself: Am I right about this? Or might I might I be arguing from um, again a core faulty judgment? Or have I made an inference along the line of reasoning that wasn't justified? Those kinds of considerations.
0: So many people have expressed skepticism throughout the ages. Not every skeptic has come to the interpersonal ethical conclusion of a kind of generosity of spirit towards one's ideological foe. In fact, um, if you think of the Bhagavad Gita, there's a kind of skeptical argument there as well, which is, you know, how do I know that God's on my side and not on the other side? Um, Why should I engage in this stupid war? Um, And I think the response is like, no, like God is on that side, on the other person's side as well, but God puts you in your position <laughs> to fight for your side and a different God put them in their position to fight for their side. And like, it's not really your business. In other words, you make a good case for why skepticism should lead to something like civil discourse or something like a kind of liberal, a soft liberal norm of hearing the oppositional viewpoint giving them credence you know being collaborative as opposed to antagonistic like why couldn't a Carl schmidt type or an authoritarian type um also be a skeptic who hears that diamond and then says yeah thank you diamond I, i'll take it from here now let's go fight the enemy
1: yeah i mean it, i for me it has to do with the kind of the level of which at which the skepticism is applied for me. Um, and here, I, I think I, uh, I, I sort of agree with uh, someone you had on your program a few months ago, Mark Lilla, who's a teacher of mine and a friend. Um, there's a way in which the, the way to describe my kind of skepticism uh, is, is it's applied to my own psyche. Um, it's not. It's not something that I primarily direct to the external world, and I mean, we see in our own time, are kind of, you know, if to the extent that you accept the description of ours as a postmodern age, um, there, there's kind of free-floating radical skepticism all over the place, and it sort of attaches to people's political commitments as as a weapon. Uh, so. And and it flips around in ways that are totally incoherent. I mean, we really saw, I mean, Ross Douth, that the New York Times uh, columnist uh, has written some good things down through the last few years about the remarkable way that the valences of different positions early in the COVID-19 pandemic flipped around. Uh, like, you know, at first, Trump was, you know, in favor of lockdowns and and you know shutting down the economy to, to kind of get the to protect against the virus, um, and uh, and at first liberals, you know, were very skeptical of the of the virus even being threatening, and then. The suggestion that it came from China as some kind of, you know, bio, you know, weapons experiment was just pure racism. And then and then actually Trump then became very skeptical of, of lockdowns and wanted to open everything up. And then the left became very pro-lockdown and then masks went from being on one side to the other. So like, you know, do we trust Anthony Fauci or do we reject everything Anthony Fauci says do we do we think that uh you know vaccines are good like Trump said when he you know put all the money into the operation warp speed program to get a vaccine and even to this day he wants to say that that was one of the great achievements of his administration whereas and of course the 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 left agrees with loving the vaccines, but they don't want to give Trump any credit. And most of the right has has sort of floated into the orbit of a kind of vague anti-vax position, even if people on the right are still in favor of getting personally vaccinated. They're so against mandates for vaccination. Uh, and then there is a faction on the right that is anti-vax, but there's also one on the left. So like I, this is all just an example of how we we subject certain people in the political argument around us to absolute skepticism and treat what they're saying as something that can be dismissed. That isn't the kind of skepticism that I'm arguing in favor of. I do think that in general, kind of epistemologically, it makes sense to be skeptical of what people are saying, whether they're government officials or scientists, let alone an activist on Twitter with a huge following who just sort of brings up any data point that seems to advance their position on on an issue. Um, So, and and in fact, the less, and in this I really disagree with with the right these days, Um, I think the less institutional support is is behind a, a claimant in the argument, the more skepticism one should have toward them. So yeah, sure, be, be skeptical of Fauci and the CDC, but you better be even more skeptical of the crank on Twitter who's asserting that this one data point from one study proves that actually the, the vaccines are more dangerous than getting COVID. So, um, but that's different. My, my kind of skepticism is Primarily about my own my own attachment to views of the truth, that like motivated reasoning is a real thing, and it informs everything um in our in our judgmenting our judging life and so um it's so yes. Do not, I'm not advocating, as I said before, you know, I'm not advocating not taking my own side in the fight. I am taking my own side in the fight. But with, with again, a bit of irony uh, in the background, a little bit of awareness that I, again, I might be wrong about this or at least some of the assumptions that I made to get where I am and therefore uh, again, should should be uh, should be operating from a position of humility at some level. And and I and I I sense the lack of such humility in a lot of people., um, in fact, I think uh, <clears throat> the mo- the most passionate political actors on both the left and the right uh, tend to see, what I'm talking about as a kind of weakness, as a sign of wishy-washiness, not willing to actually enter the fray and achieve all the things that absolutely must be achieved. I often get hit from the right by someone like Christopher Rufo, where like I'm a critic of a lot of woke trends on college campuses, for instance. But um, I don't support Rufo's effort to kind of go into universities and fire lots of people and. Uh, seize control of the institutions, and he has a real contempt for for me, and to the extent that he pays attention to me at all. But he likes to mock me, like, "Oh yeah, people like you who just, you know, say they're against these things, but won't actually wield power to achieve the goal of eliminating it." And I, I, my, my response to that is, "Well, what about?" you know what about trying to make universities places for genuine exchange of ideas and not just a kind of negative mirror image of the stuff on the left that you hate um you know I, that's you know I, I guess i'm sort of getting off track into another subject now so i will shut myself up
0: <laughs> um maybe let's let's pivot a little bit to philosophy so um kant And a certain enlightenment tradition has this very idealistic idea that you can get to the truth using reason. And so per your comment about motivated reasoning, um, I would say that the Kantian tradition would, uh, would urge us to transcend our motivated reasoning, to see the motivation as a kind of bias and aspire to be as scientific and analytical as we can possibly be. And then you have a kind of post-Kantian tradition, um, you know, characterized by the Romantics, which argues that Kant is wrong to think that we can achieve that universal objective point of view. And um, our biases aren't obstructions to the truth. There are our entry points into the truth. And I that kind of, um, in the 20th century, finds expression in Heidegger, um, who argues that the meaning of being is care. And so your cares, uh, your everyday cares are part of what it is to understand the world. They're not in the way of understanding the world. They're what it means to be in the world. And uh, Gadamer has this line that prejudice, which I guess in America we we think of as a bad thing, um, prejudice understood philosophically as prejudgment, prejudice is a condition for the possibility of truth, which is a very weird thing to say. Um, where do you stand on that? Debate, let's say, between the universalistic approach and which which thinks that we can and should transcend bias and the romantic view that we shouldn't not only can we not transcend bias, but we should actually double down on it in a way and say, yeah, that's just part of what it is to be human.
1: Well, I'm not, uh, yeah, I don't want to, this. this should not end up as a conversation about technical things, but I do want to at least say I'm not sure I agree with the way you described Kant's position, because I think at least when it comes to claims to knowledge, uh, he, he very much believed that um, we need to uh, determine the limits of what we can know, because we can't uh, achieve you know absolute truth uh, through the path of knowledge so you know the whole the whole you know the first critique the critique of pure reason is all about setting those limits and, and saying what we cannot know and there's a way in which that's very compatible with my position although i I tend to think that, Kant is trying to take back with one hand what, what that which he excludes with the other by saying, ah, yes, but we can know for sure what we can know and can't know. Whereas I would say, like, actually, even that isn't that clear. Um, so, maybe but,
0: maybe I would just qualify the comment then and say less less Kant himself and more the, the sort of Kantian tradition, if you want to, say, put Habermas in the mix, sort of this idea that um, there's a certain method that we can use to overcome our weakest impulses and so whether you want to call those impulses emotion or you want to call those uh, impulses self-interest or something like that, that there is a more universal, more objective point of view and that that's what we should be moving towards.
1: Right. Yeah, the kind of a enlightenment ideal that we must educate everybody and want, if we could succeed in doing that, then we would have kind of everyone would leave the cave and we would all just bathe in the light of the sun and we'd leave our prejudices Correct. behind and, uh, and,
0: and- I'll even I'll even sharpen it and personalize it a little bit in terms of like where I'm coming from with the question is like, I find the romantics to be so inspiring and so moving and they really speak to my Jewish identity as somebody who doesn't just want to be, let's say, folded into the European Enlightenment Project and have my particularism done away with. And those very same romantics were the um were the founding theorists of kind of modern nationalism with anti-Semitism as the as the go-to scapegoat that basically culminated in the Holocaust. So like the romantics gave us Zionism. They gave us Nazism. They gave us a lot of a lot of things, a mixed blessing. And um, I'm not sure I want to do away with them. In spite of that.
1: Oh sure, and I, you know, I, um, I learned a tremendous amount from Heidegger. I spent several years in grad school reading Heidegger constantly, and I, you know, I haven't really been in a position to do that regularly since. But but it shaped my thinking uh, at a very deep level, and I continue to defend him <laughs> periodically against the detractors who grow louder and louder every year. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I think we're, we're in agreement about his greatness and uh, the need to uh, take him very seriously um, as one of the real greats. Um, my own view is, <clears throat> and this, again, comes from an influence from my, at least I see it as an influence from my Straussian background. <clears throat> Every enlightenment view like the one that you sketched and that I then paraphrased as everyone leaving the cave, bathing in the light of the sun, is inevitably intertwined with an extremely questionable philosophy of history. And it's there in Kant too, even though it's in a kind of nascent form, waiting to be developed at much greater length than sophistication by Hegel and those who follow him. Um, And that is that it holds that enlightenment is a kind of civilizational project that that it assumes that at at any point in time, you come into your own and your schooling and you, you get caught up on everything we've learned up till now. And then I make my contribution to it a few steps further toward you know, absolute enlightenment and then hand that on to my children's generation and then they do to theirs. And it's like the whole human species is evolving toward ever greater enlightenment and the hope is soon, it's always never now, but soon we will actually be enlightened. And then one would assume assume we can kind of stop striving for it because we live in an enlightened world. Your kids are educated in the schools and they're bequeathed their enlightenment. And by the time they become adults, they know the enlightenment too. And we live in a world where everyone's enlightened. That is not what enlightenment means to me. I am pro-enlightenment. And in that sense, I am not Um, on the side of the romantics. But my understanding of enlightenment is very compatible with the romantics in the sense that for me, enlightenment is a permanent human ideal that has to be reenacted with every human being from scratch. Because at every moment in history, when someone grows up starts going to school as a child, they are, in effect, beginning where Gautamer says they're beginning. They're beginning embedded in prejudice. And our prejudices are, are still prejudices, even though they include believing in equal rights and the dignity of all peoples and that democracy is the best form of government and that America is somehow special because we were the first country in history to instantiate these ideals and we have a kind of vague or specific, if you're a certain kind of probably Protestant, uh, kind of almost God-providentially enacted role to kind of bring these ideals to the world. We, we come to awareness as human beings, as as kids, as children, as teenagers, um, embedded in those prejudices. And to become enlightened is to learn to examine them for oneself and to try to achieve a modicum of wisdom for each of us individually and In that respect, enlightenment is, there is no progress in enlightenment down through the ages. There is clearly progress in technology, scientific, scientific awareness of the natural world does increase over time. That is a progressive project, but when you talk about the, the human world being enlightened or achieving enlightenment, that is something that you cannot achieve by, by passively being taught what is true by your teachers. You have to engage with it more actively and look into it yourself and see, see the way that, well, every context is a cave and we, even ours, that likes to think of itself as having left the cave, like, you know, I don't know, maybe with the American Founders or something like that, um, it, it, that actually we're always beginning from square one in that respect. Um, and, and one path toward enlightenment could be reading a lot of Heidegger. I mean, it, it, it's, it, that's one, uh, and that, and, that's, and, that, and it, again, is the way I understand what I got from Strauss is that there are these limited numbers of very, very brilliant, wise human beings who have lived throughout history. And a true high, the highest education you can have is to sit at their feet for a few years, trying to learn from how they saw it and what they thought wisdom consisted in and what knowledge is. And, um, we, you know, we 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 owe it to ourselves to try to become enlightened by learning from these people, and also the religious traditions, and and all of the wisdom that's embedded in them as well. Um, so that's the that's the way in which I'm pro enlightenment, <laughs> but that means that relatively few people who were writing in the movement of the enlightenment in the late 17th and 18th centuries like are like that's not what most of them understood by enlightenment although i think hume might have come sort of close to that um and hume is definitely one of the thinkers of that era who i have learned the most from so uh and i admire a lot of the other people too writing in the in that era um they, I mean, I do support the general, you know, the encyclopedia project trying to educate ordinary people and how to read and think about the world. And in general, it's better for societies that are becoming more democratic that the citizenry actually knows something about the world. So they're not as manipulable by by elites. But um, the, the hopes that, they had for what that would bring I think were quite inflated understandably from our point of view but um, probably uh, were far beyond uh, what it was reasonable to hope for
0: one of the things you said about enlightenment being kind of this thing that you have to take up again and again and also that each individual is sort of born unenlightened and then has this their life project to overcome that sort of origin uh, so enlightenment is a kind of, uh, it's a kind of Bildungsroman, right? A kind of uh, the story of coming of age for an individual. Reminded me of uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki, which also is about enlightenment, albeit in the Eastern tradition, uh, right? Enlightenment there being not the achievement of universal reason, but uh, kind of uh, detachment from the illusion that is the ego through uh, focusing on breath for example um and suzuki champions the idea that actually you you don't become a master at mindfulness because the the master is the person who's able to approach the project with a childlike wonder as if they've never done it before so like the the trap that the (laughs) that the near masters fall into is that they think that they've completed the project that they've achieved it and then the the master is the paradoxical one who returns to being naive kind of like in in um, Heidegger he defines a teacher as um, the one who has perfected the art of being a student so that the teacher lets learning happen uh that's the only way in which the teacher is superior to the student is that the, the student know, wants to learn but doesn't know how to let learning happen the uh learn and lesson or whatever so um I like that idea but um and it resonates but it seems a little bit
1: i should i Go should add, yeah. add that like that that's exactly like that's sort of how i conceive of these things including the greatest sages of of the east heidegger socrates i see them there are differences among them definitely especially at the highest levels uh but i see them as all sort of terminating in in harmonious efforts to kind of make sense and they always they always end up confronting exactly the question that you were just talking through like how does one live one's life in light of the wisdom you've attained by by moving away from how you were raised and and the the prejudices in which you were reared you come back to it, because you're still living in this world with the people around you, and so the question is, do you think you're better than everybody else, or is it that you you live within that same world, but again, with that little twinkle in the eye, the irony, um, And that you know I, I think there are differences in those different traditions, but they are they are um, friendly differences where in the end there probably is no definitive answer to which is best (laughs) because we're all groping around in the dark and trying to figure figure this out um anyway back to your
0: one one thing though that i that i like about the enlightenment project even if i'm not sure that it's a good idea is the um the aspiration to transmit something and i feel like the beginner's mind approach is a little bit too passive on transmission or it's it brackets that issue and sort of focuses, let's say, on the individual journey. Like I have to be a beginner uh, and you have to be a beginner, but doesn't have a story of sort of change over time. And even if the enlightened thinkers were too optimistic about, uh, you know, the graph moving up and to the right, so to speak, uh, for, for enlightenment, I do like the idea um, that you're responsible to, let's say, make sure that grandchildren or great grandchildren, or you know, even beyond them, will have will have a heritage to work within, um, as opposed to just you know, uh, I have to start from scratch and you have to start from scratch. So, I don't know if do we give up too much by sort of saying that progress only exists in science and technology but not in, let's say, I don't know what you would call it, like uh, epi- epistemology or ontology or something like that. Like, in other words, and I'll, I'll sharpen it again, like right, Heidegger may have been enlightened in his understanding of the question of being. He, he was not enlightened, in my view, in his political <laughs> choices. And um, it's also possible that his political choices represent a kind of, desire, albeit a misguided one, to take his understanding of the world and transmit it. And so then the the, the problem, we, we know the problem that comes with a kind of zeal to take that understanding and turn it into social life, as opposed to just keeping it as this private, quiet affair. But even if Heidegger was wrong in, let's say, supporting Nazism, um, I still think that maybe the impulse to want to create an educational or cultural program um, as the as the kind he describes in in the 40s and 50s, in terms of you know stuff on dwelling, stuff on art, stuff on poetry, like I find that compelling, and I like the idea that let's say um, it's the job of a society to figure out um, how to build things, literally and metaphorically, that can gather communities and motivate them to pursue this understanding of being, if you will. I I think we've got to figure out ways to do it without the toxicity of tribalism and uh you know the dogmatism that that accompanies that those rallies so to speak but i don't think i'm against the idea of trying to build something institutionally um and the 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 sort of quietist view of enlightenment says ah society is going to society it's never going to be it's never going to be the place where enlightenment lives so just you know do what you have to do render unto caesar what is caesar's um but like God or truth or whatever is more of a private matter. I, I don't know if I agree with that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that is something on which we, we disagree a little bit. I mean, again, here my Straussian elitism comes in. Uh, again, another Straussian thing that uh, has influenced me. I do tend toward the view that one shouldn't expect the kind of philosophical enlightenment that I was describing and advocating would will be a kind of universal aspiration. And Strauss talks about um, the philosopher founding a sect, not like public education for a, a, a continental-wide nation of 330 million people. Um, and that strikes me as... Um, Uh, a a realistic aspiration. Um, Now, by the same token, I want to be clear that it's not quite the case that if you aspire to that very narrow private project of kind of creating a sect of a few like-minded people who will think philosophically and hand that down only to people within the sect, that doesn't mean that the larger world sort of just goes to hell in a handbasket because we do live in a in a world that is inspired by the actual existing Enlightenment ideal, and we do have science and progress and knowledge and progress and technology and um, a huge, thriving civil society in which millions and millions of people are exploring different aspects of all this stuff and. Liberal arts colleges and St. John's, where they actually read texts in Greek and sit around talking about them, and like some of them are good, some are not so good, and and uh, I don't know. I guess I'm. It's not so much uh, the way I look at it is not so much. Well, I'm just going to kind of save the me and my friends here in this garden where we're cultivating it just for us, and then to hell with everybody else. Um, it's more a, a kind of um, take advantage of the freedom and space in a liberal society's civil society, the private sphere, to do some of that um, while trusting that the world will go on okay with a kind of progress and certain kinds of knowledge and um, and, you know, that's, that's again different from like, I don't know, uh, you know, being in a monastery in the mountains of Afghanistan while the Taliban are slaughtering people and kicking women out of school and things like that. That would be a more kind of uh drastic dichotomy, whereas in, you know, uh, in a huge teeming free society like the united states or the, the countries of western europe and other places in those kinds of societies um, it's it's more a question of what you do with your freedom and i would advocate that the best thing you can do for your freedom is to get this certain kind of education if you're if you're cut out for it a lot of people aren't and and, and that is where I mean, I can call it elitist, but I don't necessarily mean it uh, in that much of a judgmental way. Simply that, you know, my my take on the old Socratic line that the unexamined life is not worth living. My 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 take on that is that's true for those for whom it's the best life. (laughs) Like, I actually don't think that one can say it is the best life simply because. For many, 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 many people are neither capable of leading that kind of life nor would thrive doing it, even if they have the cognitive ability to do it, because temperamentally they're just not suited to it, and they would rather do something else. And so, I
0: actually, I actually think Heidegger would agree with that. Um, he might not formulate it exactly in those terms, but I think that um, in Being in Time, he seems to expand the category of who is enlightened in a way. Um, away from just the philosopher to include anyone who's a kind of master craftsman so the woodworker uh, who has a kind of relationship an intimate relationship to his workshop achieves um, at the end of his mastery the same the same kind of clearing that you get from the philosopher who's working within the tradition of sort of books and ideas and maybe the, the the soldier who um, heroically, you know, um leaps towards his death in World War One, um achieves a kind of glimmer of enlightenment as he's deciding that this is the way that he's gonna live. Or, you know, um, even he's got a couple of sides, but even a therapist, let's say, um, who who has a moment of connection with a, a client or a, a friend who says, you know, puts his hand on someone's back, like, Those could be enlightened moments as well. It's no longer just a prerogative of kind of intellectuals.
1: That's interesting. I that isn't exactly my reading of Heidegger, and it's it's kind of it's. But but it does touch on a real tension in the entire tradition of German idealism, in which both Kant and Heidegger are participants. I mean, Kant is kind of the founder of it unintentionally, but but there's always this tension in that tradition of like okay, I'll read your book and you'll tell me how all this maps out in some schematic way, but what's the status of your own act of doing that, writing this book? So like in reading Being in Time, I'm like, all right, well, yeah, the master craftsman is like immersed in what Heidegger calls the ready to hand and is kind of an expert in manipulating beings in the workshop and and acquiring this skill. And then there's the present at hand approach when something breaks or becomes obtrusive, or you're a scientist and you're studying it quantitatively. But what is Heidegger doing in being in time in lay, in, in, in in laying out those differences that that and that's one way in which I think Strauss doesn't usually put it this way, but I think that one way in which one can understand his turn to the ancients, to Plato and and Aristotle, but especially Socrates as an act, like I think he would say his one case for Socrates is that he's the only one who actually put that problem at the core of what he's doing. (laughs) Like, how do I understand my own activity as a philosopher Um, And there's a real problem, I think, and it's the same in Kant, too. Like, all right, fine, you've got the categories of the understanding, you've got the intuition, categories of intuition, but like, what is the critique of pure reason? What is the the epistemological foundation of the act of laying out those rules and I yeah.
0: I agree with you. I mean it's definitely attention. Um it's for it's for sure attention, right? Um I just what wonder extent-
1: I wonder in Heidegger like what it isn't Heidegger himself the enlightened one? Not the, the the guy working on building a birdhouse in in the workshop that Heidegger is using as an example in his own project. Like Heidegger himself is the philosopher. He's the, he's the one doing that.
0: Like like yes and no. Like I it's it's very complicated. So I mean I I here I'll draw in a, a comparison to Wittgenstein, who's come up a bunch in the podcast as well, uh, who who says their philosophy is I think. Um, Getting the fly, uh, getting the trap fly that was in the bottle out of the bottle. So, like the nimshal, to use the Hebrew, uh, the the exposition of that parable uh, is that the philosopher is the fly, and the bottle is philosophy. So, like (laughs) the job of Wittgenstein is to cure philosophers of the sickness that is philosophy. And to your point before, like um, the non-philosopher doesn't need to be freed from the bottle; he never ended up there. So, in in another in a similar way, like what is Heidegger doing? He's diagnosing a problem, which is a kind of metaphysical thinking or theology or, you know, he's got many different names for it. And um, he's talking specifically to philosophers, how they can unlearn that particular way of doing philosophy. Uh, if you read him as, in a way, a, a healer of philosophers who took a wrong turn, he's, um, Breaking down the boundary between philosophy and non-philosophy, he's actually bringing them back into the ordinary, you know, ordinary world, ordinary language. That's kind of how Cavell reads Heidegger. And like, if you look at sort of later writings of Heidegger, you know, where he speaks positively about like, like the peasants. Again, it can be a kind of faux or pseudo populism there. But there's another way in which I think what Heidegger is saying is, um, philosophy, as he's doing it, is phenomenology. Phenomenology is just paying attention to your experience, and most people are doing that. The people who aren't paying attention to their experience are the people who are filled with all kinds of crazy ideas <laughs> about how the world works because of religion or because they took too many philosophy seminars. And if they could just experience Galassenheit like those naive people, they'd be, they'd be good to go.
1: I agree with you. I think both Victor, late Wittgenstein and late Heidegger are both doing exactly that. They're sort of, they're sort of, doing philosophy to undo philosophy, kind of like working their way out of it. Um, and for me, I mean, in the end, when push comes to shove, I, I side with with Socrates uh, that. You can, and, and I think Strauss's whole project is can be understood as wanting to follow that move back to the pre-philosophical life world, if you will, but for the sake of starting again. So um, Strauss I think is immensely influenced by the idea of pragmata in chapter three, book one of being in time. The idea of the workshop, you're in this kind of sign-laden context of meaning where everything is purposive, so this isn't an order to, for the sake of which at the end. And like that way of looking at where we all begin to think um, is exactly right. Strauss's critique of that is that, yeah, but you forgot the politics that actually that, that isn't just a workshop. That's the polis. That's, that's a world of moral and political meaning that has to be. So, so instead, Strauss's innovation on Heidegger is to take that chapter from the first part of Being in Time and to turn it into the polis with ideas of the good and just and noble and so forth and begin philosophizing on that basis, but not for the sake of depositing us back in the ancient polis and naively believing in the truth of what they were saying, what Pericles was saying, or the ordinary citizens were saying in in Athens, but for the sake of beginning the skeptical questioning that Socrates engaged in of those very things But hoping, assuming that it's not going to just end up recapitulating the mistakes in the tradition that followed it, um, you know, Heidegger has a kind of fatalism to him, where he like seems to think like, well, we can't go back to like Plato or Aristotle because we'll just end up reenacting the same forgetfulness of being again because it was all based on a prior error. Whereas Strauss wants to say, no, actually, if we begin, philosophy can always begin again if you start from the right place, which is from a certain naivete about. What is just? What is good? What is noble? Um, and anyway, that's my my kind of take on on the differences between these these thinkers. And- what is
0: what is just? Does that does that question proceed or follow what is being? Because, like in Levinas, right, has the same critique of Heidegger as well, and Leora Botnitsky has a book um, showing similarities between Levinas and. And Strauss, that basically Levinas and I guess you could throw Derrida in as well, right, a lot of these Jewish uh, readers of Heidegger and critics of Heidegger were saying that putting the question of being first is his first mistake. (laughs) It's the bias of philosophy itself that something precedes that question. It's, you know, the question of the other, of my responsibility, whatever, Um, and that sort of we don't live in relationship to this abstraction called being. Uh, even if Heidegger didn't think it was an abstraction, we live in in relationship to others. That was also Arndt's point. You know, we, we, the world is between me and you. It isn't between me and being. Um, but I but I kind of want to defend Heidegger a little bit against that criticism and say, okay, but justice is a concept, ethics is a concept, uh, politics is a concept, and those things do seem to be um, pre-philosophical. They seem to already have a meaning assigned to them. And if we want to understand what they are and what they're supposed to be, don't we need to, to ask about being? What, what, what it is that that we're doing here on Earth? So I don't actually think politics has been forgotten. I think Heidegger, in his, in his debate with Strauss, I think um, the meaning of my life has been forgotten, not the question of the political. The question of the political only makes sense if you presume that there's a being who's finite, who cares about its own mortality. Um, you know about its capacity for fulfilling its potentiality about the the tragic condition that my potentiality is at the end of the day nothingness because no matter how great i am if i become a billionaire if i become a nobel prize winner whatever my sense of status is my heroism i'm still going to die
1: so true um, <laughs> yeah um now that that's that's a that's a good point and kind of the ultimate Heidegger rejoinder is that no, being is primary, being comes first. And I think clearly he's right in a certain sense because we can't ask a question about what's just unless we presume a kind of meaningful world in which we've already taken all kinds of other things for granted. Things that follow from the way our community or the community in which I find myself has answered the question of what being is and the meaning of all of this. Um, I guess I, I would I would speculate that Strauss's response to that, which again, I'm sort of pre-committed to defend, at least when I'm again, when I was younger, i I, I more often, would side with Heidegger on this, but I've I've sort of decided I agree with Strauss more uh, down through the the decades. But um, Strauss's response I think would be to say that we need to engage in these questions as they arise in a kind of natural condition of politics. Because people do not first ask what's the meaning of life, they first ask, and they don't even first ask, what is justice? In fact, they say, this is just, <laughs> and within that life world, within that context. So in a way, philosophy in the Socratic sense arises when somebody first makes a claim about what justice is. And then someone, some pesky troublemaker, gadfly like Socrates, wanders by and hears them say, justice is this, and then says, oh, really? You think justice is that? Hmm. Then you must also think it's this other thing, because that, that it's implied in that. And then they go, no, I don't think that. And then he says, well, okay, well, then it can't be the first thing. So what is it then? Oh, it's this other thing. Oh, that's interesting. Well, if that's what justice is, then the gods must want you to do this third thing. And then they say, no, I don't mean that. That's ridiculous. You're impious in in implying that. And then he says, "Well, well, what do you think piety is? And then we're off and we're having this conversation about everything. And only after that conversation has been underway for a very long time with an interlocutor who has the cognitive ability to kind of follow the argument and stick with it, and the kind of the courageous spiritedness to kind of keep at it when they're exhausted after 14 hours of a conversation and everyone else is nodding off, only then might we get to the question of, yeah, well, but what's being... Like that's like the last question you ask, not the yeah, but first. The,
0: the chronologically first does not mean the ontologically first.
1: Correct. And that is totally possible. And I bet I suspect Strauss would not disagree with that. But phenomenologically, the phenomenologically accurate way of going about it is to do it in the right orders of sequences. Because if you don't and this is the last thing I'll say on this. If you don 't proceed correctly, what you will end up doing is project on to being things that are in effect mistakes or and, and that is the core of why Heidegger screwed up the Nazi question so badly because he was so fixated on the question of being that it's like, it's the difference between engaging in a dialectical ascent to the truth and trying to just break on through to the other side, to quote the doors. Um, like, they both sort of aim at the same thing, but when you break, you break through the chains uh, of, our, of our confinement in the cave, if you will, too quickly you end up kind of bringing with you a bunch of mistakes that you needed to think through on the way there.
0: Yeah, I think I think that is a good point of difference between us to surface, which is like the Straussian and a lot of other critics as well of Heidegger want to claim that his political error is necessitated by his philosophy. Whereas I tend to view his political error more as the intrusion of human weakness. And I think the philosophy kind of holds up. So, like in in my, I maybe psychologize Heidegger a little bit, as, as my way of getting around the problem, which is to say, like, um, he he was a little bit uh, too eager to see his philosophy realized in the world. Maybe he was a little bit too self-aggrandizing. He wanted to be the philosopher king. He he, he thought he had a chance for that. Um, he you know he he was raised with a kind of anti-Semitic bias. So he's already got. Um, a kind of traditionalism and, and and political conservatism, which doesn't lead to Nazism, but when you combine that then with a sort of tendency to scapegoat, um, he's he pins it, he he basically holds the Jews responsible for all the things that he finds fault with in the history of philosophy, and like that's not because his philosophy requires it, that's just because like he was a little bit of a madman whose genius turned into paranoia.
1: Well, I I don't disagree with actually that. And like if we're talking about, if Heidegger's error is 1933 to 34, then I think that that explanation could be sufficient to explain it. I don't think it's sufficient to explain why he's still talking in the Only a God Can Save Us Now interview in Der Spiegel in 1966. Why is he still talking about that that there was some some great truth within the national socialist movement that went wrong but could have been wonderful like that there's still this kind of um hope embedded in his memory of that period that it could have turned out well and it didn't and damn it I was wrong like I should have realized this was foolish, but not because the hope for that kind of political or quasi-theological refounding of a community. Like my problem with, with Heidegger is, is he's the ultimate example of believing, not not all of humanity, like the Enlightenment, but like Germany at that moment had the potential to be a sort of an entire social context in which an entire community became uh eigenlish like it was like it was it was like an authentic community but i don't think that that's warranted it's not warranted in my view on the basis of my reading of being in time and it's not warranted on the basis of, of being wise about the way the world is, that to hope that you're gonna have a community where everybody is just authentically in tune with their own finitude and gazing into that um, collectively. This is an individual achievement that is rare and you, everyone's not going to be a philosopher. But anyway, again, now I'm blending things and sort of bringing it no, in. No,
0: I mean, I don't want to spend my social capital, like, defending Heidegger's <laughs> politics. Like, it's like a weird hill to, to die on, so to say. Um, I
1: should also throw in that I don't mean to say that I think Heidegger's philosophy entails Nazism in the way that a lot of his critics are saying. It's you know I, I think that that very much is a product of his moment and you know what if what if the political context of weimar germany had unfolded how unfolded differently and the national socialists hadn't ended up in power um i don't know like i don't think his philosophy entails na- nazism
0: i think or what if or what if national socialism didn't wasn't genocidal what if what if national socialism was simply you know a strong sense of german pride which by the way like every 20th century nation had like wanted to encourage that kind of strong nationalism yes maybe some imperial aspirations um but what if what if jews were totally accepted as provided that they were germanic in their pride i mean then we'd go we, we look at world war one where many jews wanted to assimilate and had german pride and fought for the German side of the war. Right. um,
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. I think there are a lot of historical contingencies there that made it so that Heidegger's uh, brief idealistic effusion uh, latched onto what just so happened to be the most execrable regime in human history just because that's what was happening at that moment. But I don't think the philosophy entails that that's the political movement you put your hopes in. Um, yeah,
0: but I think I think you're right that like the the question is do you think that politics um, can and should express your philosophical ideals
1: or is I, phil- I do not
0: right or is philosophy more of a sect right which exactly. I guess you know in a weird way I hadn't put two and two together before but like if you if you read Strauss as, as advancing the argument that you know just gather around with a handful of friends and kind of uh, be a be a philosophical sect so two things come to mind with that. One is the Talmudic story of the founding of rabbinic Judaism, the temple under siege, and uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai smuggles uh, smuggles himself out of the besieged Jerusalem in a coffin and tells the emperor, like, "We'll forfeit. We won't fight you anymore. Like, I'll oppose the Zealots in my own camp. In exchange, just give us Yavna, give us a place where we can study Torah, and we'll we will we'll stop seeking." Uh, Political conflict. And that's the origin story of Judaism, at least for 2,000 years until Zionism, is a kind of a philosophical sect in a way. Um, and then the other, the other thing that it came to mind was De Tocqueville's idea of like America um, being strong if it can, or insofar as it strengthens the local, uh, the local communities. So sort of the, the proliferation of sects is a positive as opposed to this sort of, you know, top-down view of culture.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see both of those and certainly the Talmudic one uh, resonates with uh, with Strauss, I think personally, and it's amusing to think of like a second founding of rabbinic Judaism for the name of in the name of Socrates happening in Chicago in the 1950s.
0: Correct but, uh... <laughs> So I mean maybe like again to graft to graft that Strauss-Heidegger debate like onto Judaism, Maybe that's also an intra-jewish debate, if you want to say it, between the zealots who who resurface again in the, the 19th century as Zionism and the uh the rabbis who at least for most of their uh for most of their cultural history were kind of ag- agnostic to and uh even opposed to kind of political aspirations and just wanted to learn torah so the east Coast West Coast Straussian thing. <laughs> Can be found in every tradition, right? It's not just about Strauss.
1: Indeed, indeed. I, I like to, I, I, I like talking about my my f- former friends out in Claremont as zealots. <laughs> that yeah. works for me. No, I'm, I'm just right. kidding. No, I I, 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 I,
0: I, didn't, I didn't I didn't don't want to like I, I guess my my point in, in these analogies is not is not to uh, erase the differences, you know, the ideological or substantive differences, but I think just to point to the the formal. The formal tensions between um, being more what uh, worldly and and being more uh, optimistic, radical that you can change the world with your ideas versus more the idea of a haven and carving out a private space. I think of um, you know Hegel used the word critically but beautiful soul, kind of beautiful soulism that ph- philosophy can make you a beautiful soul, but maybe it can't make the world beautiful.
1: so that sounds wise to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I appreciate, appreciate the conversation and uh, wish you all the best.
1: Same. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAdkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at zoharadkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.